Welcome back to Occupy Interview. Our guest, uh, Robin, please introduce yourself. Hi there, Terry. Yeah, I am uh, Robin Kerner. Um, as you can hear from my funny-sounding voice, I am a, uh, I'm British-born. I'm an American permanent resident of nine years, will be a citizen next year. Uh, founder of Watching America, a large volunteer organization that translates foreign commentary and opinions and perspectives about the United States from all over the planet and uh, probably best known in the U.S. for coining the phrase Blue Republican um, in, an, I, in a, an article on the Huffington Post where um, I write as a political and economic writer. This is the second show in this series. Last show was Occupy Liberal, um, and we are now in Occupy 1776. You're especially uh, with the movement. To, what really makes it fascinating is you talk about paradigm shifts. Uh, we have a uh, we have a, a picture up there in the corner uh, on the uh, links page that shows the flag, the first flag of the Continental Congress that they voted in, and it shows the Union Jack, uh, and it's combined in with the stars, the the bars that we're used to. Uh, it's also the flag of the British East India Company, and we'll come back to that towards the end of the show. Um, Paradigm shift. What about 1776? You've got a fascinating amount of information. We think of it as, hey, we just reinvented the wheel over here in 1776. <laughs> uh, we won't worry about that Magna Carta thing, which we're not doing so well taken care of right now, and I hope we address that issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I should say, uh, to be fair, um, what with uh, joining the European Union, the British aren't taking very much care of that Magna Carta thing either. Um, well, this is... The anniversary of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. uh, couldn't be a better day to tape this show. Talk to me. What did we miss prior <laughs> to 1776? Well, you know, this is, uh, this is a topic that I find fascinating because I, I, I find in a way that my personal history kind of follows the history of America in the sense of, uh, you know, um, being a British a uh, project, uh, a British-initiated project. I was a British-initiated project. Um, you know, that uh, came west, came to the new world for increased freedom and uh, liberty, um, which is... <laughs> How's that working out for you? <laughs> well, That's I, a joke. I, I, don't, just, don't go there. <laughs> it's a good question, and I'm going to say, actually, despite everything I might say in this show in the next hour, um, it's working out pretty well, because I don't think I could do what I do politically anywhere else, certainly not in the way that I do it. So I'm very glad to be here. We'll be glad to have you as a citizen. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> we need all the help we can get. <laughs> um, well, you have this presentation that you do, and I'm, I'm, we'll have it linked too. It's, uh, can you, uh, real briefly, what is that presentation? Well, that, well, that's a work in... What I sent you, Terry, is a work in progress. That is not a finished presentation. Oh, okay, so we won't go there yet. <laughs> that's, that's, no, I wouldn't link that yet, but, um, but, you know, when I have uh, completed it, I'll... Uh, I'm, I mean, I sent it to you so you can get the gist of what I'm working on. Okay, well, uh, then obviously a short version, if you would. I'll be glad to send it to you. Yeah, okay, so um, what, I've, what I've discovered here in the U.S., spending time among my liberty-loving friends, <laughs> um, well, and pretty much all Americans, is you seem to be under this... Uh, I, I say this provocatively, misapprehension, that the Americans had a revolution against the British. And to an approximation, uh, you, could, you could say that was true. But I think much more importantly, 1776, the American Revolution, was really part of a process with a much bigger history. It's a step like many other steps in the history of, if you like, the political instantiation of individual liberty. And this is a process that has, uh, as I say, other steps with important dates. 1215, you mentioned the Magna Carta, very important. Actually, this process definitely goes back to 1014. Um, there's an important Anglo-Saxon charter in 1014, which uh, arguably was the first constitutional settlement, and, uh, and there are other dates. Um, and, you know, Americans talk about the Bill of Rights. Of course, the American Bill of Rights was a Bill of Rights. It was the second <laughs> Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights was uh, in Britain, 1689. And, 
uh, it's worth understanding the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution as a, a move, a very, very important move in that Anglo tradition of increased individual liberty and, um, in, as I say, the kind of political concretization of individual liberty. Because I think that, in some ways, our job to bring uh, liberty um, to America and to Americans is almost inhibited by the fact that, if you like, America is the victim of its founder's success. I mean, obviously, the Constitution, the American Constitution, is arguably the, 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 the most sublime political document perhaps ever written. It's certainly up there. And Americans, with this idea that there was a revolution against the tyranny of the British and we started all over again, um, it's almost like they don't look back to the kind of changes that have gone on throughout British history, and I'm going to say that to a first approximation before 1776, British history is American history, for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. um, if, you, if you don't see that thread back past 1776, how it is that um, these big democratic, and they're nearly always democratic, in the sense of democratia, power of people, how these moves um, at certain times in history get made, why they happen, why is it that uh, the people or a subset of the people stand up against concentrations of power, government, at certain points, and in reaction to overreach by power or government, uh, write documents, usually, that institute freedoms that are not brand new. What was in the Bill of Rights, what's in the Constitution, what's in the Declaration of Independence, none of that was new at the time. Um, as per the flag that you mentioned, Terry, the um, flag with the, you know, the British Union flag in the top left and then the, uh, the stripes of the colonies, that was that first revolutionary flag. What, that really kind of tells you a bigger point here, that the founders didn't think they were doing anything new. What they thought they were doing um, is they were preserving liberties. The word that is used throughout Anglo history uh, is customs. That they already knew or felt that they had. They weren't actually claiming anything new. They weren't trying to change, in a sense, the political settlement as they understood it. They were trying to, um, you know, ensure that they had the political settlement that they were supposed already to have had. I think I've seen over and over and over again, and I never really did think about it from this point of view, because we don't really, if you're a Native American, you don't really think in terms of having been a British subject, changing your allegiance, which is no small uh, no small change. You're talking uh, treason charges. They could have been hung. Everyone that made that decision, I assume. Um, so uh, they, they re repeatedly, you see the term, we're standing up for our rights as British citizens. Mm -hmm. And, and, and you're, uh, you had a quote. I don't know whether, can I mention it from the... Uh, sure, yeah, 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 absolutely. The, the guy that was the uh, Hatton Sumner's. Democratic congressman from Texas from 1913 to 1947, chairman of House Judiciary Committee, mm -hmm. uh, quote, a straight run, I'm sorry, a straight road runs from Runnymede to Philadelphia. Our Constitution came up from a self-governing people. Right. Uh, um, again, what the Western tradition, uh, and I'm talking about Spengler, or talking about Toynbee, um, they're mentioning that it, it has a much bigger element of individualism. And that seems to be coming in from the Germanic tribes, the Anglo-Saxon tribes. Can you get me out of the swamp here? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, out, I'm over my head, please. That's absolutely right, Terry. Um, that, that's interesting that you should raise that, because it's kind of a subtle... I guess historical point, um, but in a way, what, by saying that, you really are marking the very beginning of this process. Um, the notion of kingship that prevailed in England 
since England was settled by the Anglo-Saxons, by the Angles from Germany, was actually um, a notion of kings of, of lim- it was limited kingship and it was kingship by consent. Indeed, um, when the Angles first came, they didn't have kings of any kind. They barely really had leaders. These tri- these tribesmen. Um, that wasn't. They were, it was a very egalitarian, communitarian uh, society when they settled England, and really the uh, Anglo-Saxon notion of kingship arose as necessity. Um, out of the need to defend um, the country, I'm using country use loosely at this point, back at, you know, in Anglo-Saxon times, to call it a country, you're kind of stretching words a bit. But, um, you know, there were, there were repeated invasions, and um, the, the tribes of Angles decided they needed to reform their political structures to better be able to defend themselves from these, you know, external, ex- these uh, incoming hordes, these hordes from outside, you know, the Danes and the Norsemen and so on. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, so they did that. So they, 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 ha- they had kings, but it was, it w- the kingship itself evolved um, from the people for the good of the people. And that idea was in a British, we'll call it British again, using words loosely, English um, kingship from the very, very beginning. The monarchy did not start as, you know, absolutist, absolute tyranny and then kind of get better and better and better from there. It actually started much better than absolute tyranny. Got worse, <laughs> you know, through um, the you know, Middle Ages, and you can plot this, and it's fascinating. Um, but but now we're getting to uh, the really important point that I think Americans, that we in America right now in the modern liberty movement, need to understand. If you, um, what happened in this process from, let's say, the, uh, the you know the the settlement of England by the Angles. That's why it's called England, of course. Um, you know, through to uh, 1776 and, and through to today. Mm-hmm. If you, um, what what has happened is throughout a thousand years there has been negotiation between power and uh, those, if you like, on whom or against whom power is wielded. So you know the the governor and the governed, and what has happened is, inevitably, at various times in history, the power has overreached. Now, for most of English history, that was uh, the monarchy overreaching. And when the monarchy overreaches in a way that impinges on, I will call it, the culture, then you democratic forces coalesce and resist. And when they resist successfully, they, to use the word I used early, earlier, instantiate what they call customs. Now, there are plenty of constitutional documents that actually, including the Magna Carta, that use the word custom. And what is referred to by that is the, the set of freedoms that are already taken for granted in the culture. And they're taken for granted almost, they're believed in because they're already exercised, right? Right. And we in the, in the liberty movement in America, so it seems to me, because it's obviously a political movement, we think the whole game is politics. No, no, no. The whole game is not politics. When power infringes upon people um, so much so that the people resist and can resist with the strength um, and concertedness that allow the political settlement to be changed in favour of individual liberty. It is because power hasn't just removed political liberties, but has stepped into the the cultural realm. It's affecting people in such a way that things they already feel they have are being taken away. Things they are already taken for granted are being taken away. In other words, the culture's kind of been made to change by power. And that's when people react. And the reaction is democratic, as I said, in the sense of um, uh, people, uh, democratia, power of people. And it must, of course, be that way, because government 
which, as I say in history, has often been monarchy, is a massive concentration of power. We talk about government and state as monopoly of power, and that's definitely true. Um, you know, that's, that, that's a reasonable uh, definition of the state. Now, if you have that kind of concentration of power, the only thing that can um, you know, possibly stand up against it is the, you know, the rest of the power that's inherent in all of the people who are governed by the concentration of power. Are you with me? Uh, yes. It, it has to come together. Now, that only happens at certain points in history. And it happens when, as I say, um, power oversteps its bounds and starts interfering with, quote, the customs, abusing the customs, um, stepping across the line of things, of individual liberties, um, of rights, that the people already feel they had. And now, Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, you've got this absolutely fascinating list uh, in, of, of the different charters, which would each be an event where the people have had to react to that yeah. overstepping. You start with 1014 Charter of, please say the name for me. I'm <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was up with that one? Real short version. Okay. Well, you know now what. So, so what happens in this process is. Um, you know, when the people get sufficiently agitated, right, right. Um, uh, power, the, the, the exercise of power becomes increasingly difficult, right? Okay. I mean, so just think, right, if you've got the streets full, filled with Occupy Wall Street protesters, right, um, exercising power for those who do that kind of thing becomes more difficult, yeah? Right. T'was ever thus. So what then often happens is you have a negotiation between power and people. And, um, I see what you're saying. Okay, so so that's like the first of the negotiated that you start the cycle with here. I I would say so. I mean, look, I am not okay, a historian, yes. but in terms of English history, which, as I say, your first approximation is American. You know, before the actual foundation of American, right. uh, history, you know, of America. Um, yeah, 1014 is the is Charter of Ethelred, and as I as I mentioned in those slides that I kind of sent you, my working document, um, the first the first um, constitution settlement because it was really the first time that something was written down that as it that, that, that you could even identify as a political settlement exactly. it actually said uh, it actually said you cannot overtax and you cannot enslave free men okay. and it said that to a uh, the, you know to a king who might otherwise have wanted to do those things Okay, uh, we're about uh, uh, 17 minutes into the show. Uh, can we move to the next one? Uh, coronation of Charter of Henry I, uh, 1100. Uh, so that should say, yeah, the Coronation Charter of Henry I, yeah. So, um, so what you have here, obviously, is always this tension between power and, and the governed. And um, these things, uh, the history provided an opportunity for the people to put the government in chains, you know, just like the American Constitution was supposed to do, you know, back up in seventeen sixty six. Even in eleven hundred. If you're if you're a king or you want to make a claim to power, if you want to be a king, but there are other people who also have a claim on the throne, which has happened, you know, many times. Right. The situation has prevailed many times in English history. Then uh, then the way to secure your position in power is again to go through this kind of negotiation. Ah, uh, right? okay, is I'm with say, you. Guys, you guys have these customs. I am going to make those customs, again the word customs, it's in that coronation uh, charter of Henry I. Yes. Um, he talks about you know, the bad customs and good customs. Um, and so, and the good customs they refer to, or usually just the customs of the people, refer to, the individual liberties taken for granted that are there in the culture that have been honoured for so long because they've always been honoured for so long because they're expected. So um, Henry I um, wants to uh, press his claim against uh, his older brother Robert in his coronation. He tells the people that he's going to remove uh, the bad customs that um, actually you know, some of his descendants had tried to enforce on the people, and to rule as Edward the Confessor, the Anglo-Saxon uh, king, um, who ruled no explicitly through this notion of consent. You know, I said that the Anglo-Saxon kings started with the notion of consent, so later kings would refer back to it. 
would refer back to kingship with consent. And that, that negotiation kept them secure because they were giving the people something. You'd basically – oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say one other thing, um, which was that – so when you properly understand monarchy, and I think that um, – uh, in the America, the Amer- because of the American founding myth, most Americans don't get this, is one of the reasons British people have liked having a king is because the king divides power against the elite, against the aristocrats, the gentry, right? Right. So whereas we talk about, um, you know, divided powers in the US, executive, legislature, etc., right, judiciary, um, that idea of division of power and playing, it, play, playing power off against power was already um, kind of in the minds of people who thought about, let's call it the Constitution in England, we, because in England you, can div- you have divided the one against the few against the many. Does that make sense? Uh, the monarch against the aristocracy against, or the gentry, whatever you want to call them, against the people. And sometimes the people will celebrate the king when he, they see the king able to defend their rights against elites that would take, you know, especially in feudal society, that would suppress the people. And that is often stated explicitly, too, at various points in history. So, so this is kind of what Ben Franklin is referring to. There's a quote from him where he's uh, talking about sometimes it's cheaper to have one tyrant than 50. Um, and then I believe there's also the corollary there. I don't remember whether it's stated, but sometimes the 50 is cheaper than the one. Uh, that you also your notes showed that this was Edward Confessor, and he was ruling with right. consent, which is not how we tend to think of. That's not the paradigm we think of for a king. That's uh, really fascinating. You said that's also copied into Magna Carta. There's Magna Carta again. Right. And we're there. It's 1215. Uh, by the way, also, it looks like they made about 80-some-odd years before they had to have another total get-in-the-face-of-royalty. Uh, now we're going to jump ahead another 115 years. Things kind of held, and now we have to have things get bad enough. Right. Magna Carta, can you kind of touch on so, that? So now these dates, these jumps, what we're doing is we're jumping between points, uh, points where cultural liberty enjoyed in the culture liberty enjoyed by men um these are points where those liberties get written down and turned into political institutions or political settlements okay and the big big point that i want to um the american liberty movement of today to understand is that the culture wags politics not the other way around Mm. like politics is the tail of the culture dog um these fight backs against power start in the culture, right? And they are usually, as I have already said, reactions against overreach of power into the culture. So what, let me just give a modern example before we go on to the Magna Carta so that you can understand what I mean. Okay. That's quite an abstract idea, but it's very general and it's very important. And uh, we, we have easy to understand examples of it right, right now in America. I have been writing, for example, um, you know, and, uh, until my kind of fingers bleed about, <laughs> the, about the civil rights implications, the negative civil rights implications of the Patriot Act and the NDAA, right? The fact that um, uh, the, the due process clause, which we're gonna, we'll talk about with, in relation to the Magna Carta, which is where it's first written down, that we as Americans now have been stripped of due process under... Um, Patriot Act and under the NDAA, especially under the NDAA. Now, there is probably no greater single individual liberty that you could remove from, uh, you know, modern men and women. But it was it was voted away when they voted for the NDAA and, and arguably the Patriot Act. Now, people like me, I'm sure people like you. Terry and many other writers and, and, and concerned citizens have been screaming about how important this is. But what actually happened? Did people take to the streets? Did people march on D.C., you know, with, enjoying their Second Amendment rights because they passed the NDAA? No, they didn't. Right? Why not? Because unless you need due process, that, rem- that political removal of a political liberty 
doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect you. Because in your everyday life, you're not using due process. You don't feel it. You don't feel it. In contrast, for example, people can get, people on the left, maybe, get much more concerned about whether they can smoke a, a cigarette made of marijuana. Mm-hmm. Or people on the right get more concerned about whether they need to have this check or that check to have their guns. Now, I understand that they're important rights. You're right to put in your body whatever you want. Your right to self-defense. I, and I understand the importance of those things. And they're very good things to get exercised about, you know, um, smoking weed and, and firearms. I get it. But they are certainly not greater things than the rights that have been taken away through the Patriot Act and the NDAA. I mean, the Patriot Act takes away our right to free speech. I mean, these are huge, huge uh, rights, constitutionally protected rights that have been taken down. We don't get really that bothered about those because they're not in our culture in the same way that for some people, you know, guns are in their culture. For some people, marijuana, you know, marijuana is kind of is something they enjoy. It's part of their culture, part of their circle, whatever. Right. So... Um, so what I sorry go ahead well, the, the declaration basically is and I think you're yeah. I may be anticipating where you're heading but they talk about I've got a pet peeve when I hear people talking about sheeple like the people aren't doing mm-hmm. enough uh, the declaration is quite clear that people you better expect people to uh, endure evils while evils are sufferable and to write the causes and institute new government and then basically says why that happens. And, and that's where we're at right now. Evidently, right. I guess you're saying those were still sufferable evils until they become insufferable. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. interestingly now, you know, again, I talk about the Patriot Act and the NDAA. Right. Um, anybody that's read about those should not be surprised by what Snowden has told us. Edward Snowden and his whistleblowing. Right. Um, but what I think Snowden has done is moved what was a kind of um, a, politi- a, a political takedown of liberty into a felt cultural impinge- infringement, right? In the sense that now when I make a phone call, it doesn't feel the same. <laughs> like something I do every day feels different. Um, that would be a paradigm yeah. shift by the way. Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the, at, the, at the gut level. So people who aren't like you and I getting all exercised about, you know, politics and our rights as, as defended or not um, by the political class, you know, now maybe they've kind of bumped up against it. It's kind of normalizing a problem in the culture. It, it, we are now feeling impinged upon. And I've got to tell you, I, I'm not a saint on this. I, as long as evils were sufferable, I suffered them rather than have to try to face up to a uh, watershed moment for me was 9-11. I think okay. a lot of people in the movement. But, but anyway, I, I just want to say... Well, in my own defense, <laughs> uh, my evils didn't become sufferable until a point. Well, well, indeed, didn't become unsufferable till a point. Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I'm obviously, and I'm obviously making massive crass generalizations, but obviously, all of us as individuals, you know, we have to get on with our lives. Well, I feel a little guilty about that. I do wish I'd have done. I've had a friend of mine, one of my best friends. Who, uh, who grew up, he was a kid, he was one of my best friend's kids, now he's one of my best friends. And then one of his questions is, why didn't you fix this? You guys talked about it for 20, 30, 40 years. Why didn't you fix it? And now as he's getting older, he's finding, uh, well, it's kind of easier said than done, some assembly required. Uh, right. it, did I interrupt you in the middle of something there? No, 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 you're right. I mean, you know, this is it. It's... Um I mean, it's like the, you know, it's that parable. It's the biblical parable of the bad judge, right? The judge does the right thing when it becomes, when you make it too hard for him not to. Okay. Right? And, and I think the people make it too hard for power to do what it will, only at certain points. See, this yeah. is why it's, it's fascinating that your background is out of physics, right? It's, it's almost like you're observing the motion and the, yeah. and the vector states as, as opposed to... <laughs> Uh, it's really an interesting way of looking at it, and I really, once again, want to thank you. Uh, we're about halfway through the show. We've really got to get to Magna Carta. Uh, okay. Did I miss something? No, that no. I, I, think we're, 
think we're set up nicely. I think we're set up nicely. Um, and, uh, you know, because Magna Carta, uh, obviously, it was imposed by the barons on the king. Now, yeah, it is, um, it is obvious that the barons themselves formed an elite class. But that doesn't mean that the principles in the Magna Carta were not uh, important and are not the ones on which even um, the, uh, yeah, the, the, well, if, as, as the... Um, as, it's a step in the evolutionary process, basically. Yeah, exactly. As, as uh, Hatton Summers, who you, you quoted, um, pointed out, you know, the straight road runs from Runnymede yes. to Philadelphia. Yes. And so that's, this is what we're now talking about. And that doesn't change just because it was imposed by an elite against, um, uh, you know, a one, the one, the monarch. And what, what the monarch had done is uh, he'd been overtaxing. He'd actually ceded sovereignty to the Pope, um, uh, sovereignty of England to the Pope, which is a fascinating story. And uh, so what the, um, the barons did was basically, once again, write down the, uh, not entirely, but in large part, the rights that they already believed they had, the customs that were already in place. So they turned something, um, you know, felt liberties got made into political, and political institution, political constraints. And again, so this is what I want to say. This is the same as what happened in 1776, uh, broadly speaking. And in the Magna Carta, um, it was so, so, so important because it defined the duties of a king. So the monarch now has things the monarch has to do and things as, as per 1014, so this was a little less radical, things he cannot do. But what was completely radical in 1215 with the Magna Carta is, the Magna Carta said, if you don't do them, we can come and get you. So the idea of the Magna Carta was that these were no longer just words, that we were going to make, put into a political institution, these constraints on the monarch. Okay. Now, why is this relevant? Why is this relevant today? Because, and we kind of circle back to this, the President of the United States is a monarch. Make no mistake. Monarch just means rule of one. Right? That's what the word means. Rule by one. One person. Every nation has one uh, to a greater or lesser extent. Every nation has someone that gets to wield power that nobody else in the nation can wield. In the case of the American president, that power is awesome and awful. And it is a power that hasn't been wielded by a monarch in Britain since long before George III. You know, don't think that George III was responsible for the tyranny that supposedly America was reacting against. We might get, we might get to that. Um, but, you know, the, he wasn't. And indeed, you know, as I say, the power claimed and exercised by the American president was, um, was made pretty much impossible to wield in England, well, by 1689, let alone 1776. Right, so basically, that, that was what they're saying once again when they say we are fighting for the rights of free men, that it had been taken away here, not there at that time. Is that accurate? Sorry, say that again, Terry? I, uh, again, in 1876, where they're continually saying they were looking for the rights of free men, uh, that, that those rights were still in place because of these documents and these right, changes right. that you're so you talking think, about. Yeah, you, you, you meant 1776. You're talking about... The American founding, right? Right. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, so these, these founders were able to look back at the, at the pattern, the trend, and the, you know, the ratchet. Because what's going on here is like a historical ratchet process, right? Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, you know, it, you, you lock in politically these customs, these, these customs of liberty, and then power offends them. Power offends what has already been locked in. And so based on what has been locked in, there's, um, uh, there's a reaction and more of the customs get locked in and so on and so on. So absolutely, 1776, this is the point I want to make, was part of that process. And the reason it's worth, it's worth, it's critical that we understand 1776 is part of that process, 
is because there has now been, I believe, we're at the point where, you know, 200 and some old years after 1776, power in America is now infringing so much on the people against the constraints in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, etc. And so we're, we're due for another turn of the ratchet in the direction of individual liberty. It's a, an excellent reminder of just what we're having to try to get back in touch with. 1215 Magna Carta, you've got a capsulization of some of the high points. Uh, defined rights and duties of a king. We've kind of mentioned that. Right. Uh, no free man yeah. shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his possessions save by lawful judgment of his peers or equals. 12.15. 12.15, and that's probably, that's um, Article 29, and that article, as is, is still on the books in England. Outstanding. Uh, to no one shall we sell or deny or delay justice. Right. Taxation requires consent. Inheritance tax. A constitutional first authorizes use of force against monarch if transgressive. So this is where we're going to see the, the guys talking about John Locke and social contract. And is this, this is what they're working out of, right? Oh, now that's interesting. I, can I, in what, I don't know in what sense I would say that philosophers like Locke are working out of... Um, this document, this political document in particular, but of course they're working out of this tradition. That yes. was, yeah, that was where I was yeah. trying to, to get right. to. And, and again, we have lost touch with that tradition in that it's taking us this long to realize we don't want to be losing things that have been fought for since 1215. Uh, Indeed, and you know, on that point, um, and I, I haven't quite put this together, there's, there's a point I've made against um, my friends who are very passionate about the Second Amendment. Um, and I just realized that it relates actually to the last line on that slide that we're looking at about the Magna Carta, the use of force against the monarch if he transgresses. Um, yeah, lovers of liberty and constitutionalists here rightly say, you know, the Second Amendment is important because in the final analysis, in the, you know, when push comes to shove, when there's nowhere else left to go, um, the, the people must be able to defend themselves against the government and I find it interesting when I um, and indeed the takedown of rights you know that the government is often in, you know responsible for um, or the transgression of rights the government is often responsible for and, I, and I've heard a few of, of my friends say you know when they come for our guns you know then we'll fight back and I'm like well if you're going to wait until they come for the thing that you're supposed to use to protect your rights before you actually use the thing that you're supposed to use to protect your rights, then you're not using it to protect your rights. Right? I, I understand what you're saying, other than the Williamsburg model there was they were coming after the guns. The Boston model was they were coming after the gunpowder, the malicious gunpowder. And they did react at that point. Up till that point, that, right. was a, that was a tripwire in military terms. In, right, right. No, and, and I, I, I'm not arguing with that. I, I'm just trying to, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just trying to get a clarification. Right, right, yeah. No, I'm just, I'm just making the point that if, you're, if your Second Amendment right is to defend your uh, individual liberties against, um, you know, overreach by the government and indeed to protect yourself against a tyrannical government per se, you probably need to start pulling them out before they actually come for your guns. Okay, and the, the 1776 model to that would be they were making those preparations. They had the committees of correspondence, which led to committees of safety, which led to... So basically, they yeah. are, that, that's where we fit back. Am I understanding it correctly? Right. That's kind of what we're looking at here. Yeah, and I'm just ra raising it here because 1215 was when they came up with the bright idea of legitimizing that. Uh, <laughs> of saying that, you know, that those of us under the monarch can, uh, can constrain the monarch, um, not just because he's, you know, trying to fight a war against us, but because he is denying us these rights that we have written here. And that's what the 1776 version of this process is saying when they say this is self-evident because they're referring to all of these customs. Is that, is that basically it? Well, I would say, I mean, I think, you know, the idea of these things being self-evident, 
I mean, that's almost, I mean, that's almost a metaphysical point about the nature of people and man, and it's, I think it's, it's right. Um, but even if you, even if you don't want to say it's self-evident, this tradition still, I mean, I think it is, but this tradition still stands. It's still clear that, you Cross know, it at your own risk. turning it's, of this ratchet. Right? Yeah, that is the backside to self-evident is, well, it's going to happen this way, cross this line at your own peril, is basically the way I understand what they were looking at, and basically what it looks like from, what, 800, 900,000 years of, of uh, constitutional history here? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean the 1776 and the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all of that, um, it's a crystallization. It's a crystallization, a wonderful, you know, probably the highest crystallization of this process. Um, but... And the American founders were, you know, I mean, it was a kind of a moment of collective genius. But let's be clear, all of the figures in this, hi this Anglo history, and I'm going to say Anglo because it's, you know, English, British, American history, did all this work in a sense so that the founders didn't have to. This is the work that was done. This was the work that was done before the founders founded, <laughs> you know, the nation. You know, it wasn't that, it was not that, this is what I want to say, it was not that the founders threw away what came before and started again. It's almost the opposite of that. I, I believe, I get that, that really is, and once again, that's just not how you would tend to look at it, but that's a paradigm shift. Right, and this is why I want to say, you can call it an American revolution, in the same sense that you can call the English glorious revolution a revolution. To a first, you know, to a, superficially it was, but... Even the revolution is a step of evolution. And that's what we have to get. That's what we have to get if we as a movement in this country are going to claim, reclaim our liberties, re-exert uh, our liberties. Um, we have to understand this process. We have to understand how it's always been done before. And as, as part of the cultural part of that, it seems to me 1215 is the time period we're talking about the legendary Robin Hood. Mm -hmm. Uh, when yes. he's talking about Prince John, is this guy going to become King John? Is this the, the characters in Robin Hood? Those are basically this time period, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, yeah, this is that's right. This the Sheriff of Jottingham is working for the guy that when he finally does steal office from Richard the Lionhearted, which is what their story is kind of going round and round with. Uh, then he actually screws it up so bad they had to make Magna Carta. This is the same guy, right? Yeah, no, all of this was, yeah, no, I mean, these dynamics were, were of this period. And, and, and uh, the cultural thing, you talk, I don't yeah. normally hear people talk about it. You, like you said, you think of it in terms of big political movements and documents, and that's not what drives this. It's the culture. It is the legend of Robin Hood. Right. That's Why the, do we still know Robin Hood's name? Exactly. If you, so one way, exactly, one way you could put it is that, you know, it was the culture that birthed Robin Hood that is able, you know, that the culture that, yeah, that birthed, you know, Robin Hood and his story and what he did, um, that made that a legend is the same, is the substrate from which these political changes come. Because where else can they come from, right? Gotcha. I mean, where, where else is there? Um, okay, well, we are about, uh, what, 45... 40, 45 minutes into the show, um, meaning we've got about 15 minutes left. We've made it through Magna Carta, and we've got a couple of steps from there before we get to the American Revolution. <laughs> Go ahead and rip us on through 1265. and uh, We don't have to hit every every day. <laughs> okay. Uh, so 1555 is another uh, milestone that you get. And, again, I'm, I'm looking forward to when we can put something up. It has all of this. Uh, this is really superb. Uh, 56 is a milestone. Well, let's, let's, let's talk. If you've got 15 minutes, let's jump to 1657. Okay. Let's jump petition. to Let's jump to the humble petition and advice. Okay. Yeah. I, I, let, I, my degree was in history, and I don't get Cromwell. I know that probably sounds really strange, but it's an American thing. What is going on? And I was lived in Virginia. We had the roundheads. Oh. Uh, we, uh, 
Can you help me out here? We- <laughs> well, this, is, this is the really, this is the, 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 this is kind of the little paradigm shift I, I would, you know, yeah, I, I would like Americans to do. Now, look, um, so, um, so Britain was, um, when Cromwell took over, Britain became a republic for 11 years. Okay. So Britain has not always been a, a constitutional monarchy. And, um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm choosing this, I'm choosing 1657 and this, this 11-year period to talk about um, because I hope it becomes obvious why it has lessons for our time. <laughs> uh, Cromwell became a dictator. More, I mean, again, I'm, I'm approximating. Can we compare him to Napoleon at all? We've got uh, basically a republic that turns over to one guy, strong man on a white horse. Uh, I'm going to say no because I don't Cromwell's um, motivation was not expansionistic. Okay. Cromwell was much more ideologically driven. Okay. Um, he was very religious. You know, he was a Puritan. Um, so the ground that he was trying to gain wasn't, you know, as it were, the territories of Europe, but it was kind of like, you know, he was trying to win win over, you might say, the minds and morals. Okay. Um, so he had a he had a different motivation, but in terms of the concentration of power and his um, his the ease with which he kind of threw away the constraints on power that stopped him from doing what he wanted and felt he needed to do as easily as possible. Uh, you could certainly draw similarities. Now, after after Cromwell had been becoming increasingly tyrannical, and once it became clear that there were, you know, basically he he more or less dispensed with Parliament, um, and it became increasingly clear that uh, his power was secured, you know, through the barrel of a musket. At the end of all this, the humble, it was called the humble petition and advice, which was, uh, he was asked to consent to, and it asked Cromwell to become king. <laughs> now, <what laughs> this is a now, great point of view. I, I wouldn't have never have thought of it working out. This now, way, please go ahead. Yeah. Now this is. I mean, when I got this, when I got this, it really, it really kind of turned me on intellectually and got me thinking about everything we've been talking about. Why would you ask a dictator to become a king? Why? Because a king has less power than a dictator in this constitutional settlement, in this tradition. Why? Because the king is already constrained by these documents, the Magna Carta, 1014, and all the ones we didn't have time to discuss. (laughs) According to the customs of the people, the individual liberties that had been politically institutionalized that had come out of the culture. There There was, in 1700... A, you know, a 700-year tradition of things the king can't do, of rights of the people that the monarchy must honour, that had been won in this ratchet process, in this ongoing negotiation between power and the governed. Um, in what, you know, they weren't using the word democracy, obviously then, but that, you know, You had already come, if you like, 700 years along this democratic process. And the king fitted into that. But what Cromwell was, Cromwell was calling himself the Lord Protector. That didn't have any constraints. That that wasn't defined in custom. It had no context. So it could be whatever he wanted it to be. But a king could not be. That was the problem with the Lord Protector. Could we say that Cromwell was a post-constitutional ruler? A post-constitutional ruler. Um, if, he, if he went ahead and just, basically they were asking him to be a king so that he would be constrained by the Constitution. That's that, right. That's exactly right. That's exactly so right. He was, um, that was what they, you guys had already been through this once. <laughs> once oh, yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Now, and, and, the reason I, and the reason I'm kind of obviously raising that is, you know, we are right. You know, here we are, 17th of September, Constitution Day. We should yeah. celebrate Constitution, yes. but the Constitution will only ever be as good as what the culture will will do about it, right? 
of what the people will demand with reference to it. And I want to say that perhaps the American monarchy has stepped beyond the American Constitution in a way perhaps akin to Cromwell. So much so that, you know, if let's put it this way, if the American president had only the powers of the British Queen, America would be in much better shape, wouldn't it? Mm. Or indeed, you could say, ah, oh, yes, but in Britain now, uh, it's not the Queen that wields the power, which is kind of the point. It's the Prime Minister, you might say. But actually, the Prime Minister doesn't wield the power of the President. Not at all. So, so this constitutional monarchy, without a single written constitution, has in some ways been more effective in securing these rights than the American uh, set, uh, you know, polity and settlement has been with its constitution. If you look to where we are now with the NDAA, the um, Patriot Act, with, you know, the, look at what happened in Syria. You know, I enjoyed watching Reason TV, a little interview recently by, you know, Welch and, uh, um, uh, Gillespie were interviewing George Will. And, uh, I think Matt Welch said, you know, isn't it interesting that our, our, you know, monar- the, the, the monarchists from whom we rebelled were able to vote in parliament against Syria and the government immediately said they would honor the vote. Um, you know, Americans are surprised. Whereas in, in America, you know, that wasn't really going to happen except grudgingly, perhaps. That, you know, an equivalent vote in Congress, say. I mean, obviously events have, taken a turn now but you know i'm not surprised at all i'm not surprised at all because the whole point about not having a written constitution is in a way you maintain this fluidity you maintain this awareness that it everything starts in the culture that if you're really going to protect freedom it must be protected in the culture that the document alone won't do it that the political institution alone won't do it and in a way as I said earlier, America's a victim of its own success because the Constitution is so beautiful, is so near perfect. There's a danger of thinking, if only we just keep reiterating that, we'll be fine. No. The actions are in the culture. You can't just rely on that piece of paper. You can't eliminate the process that got you the piece. You can't ignore the process that got you the piece of paper because all of the work that we want to do now whether we're in Occupy, like some of your audience, or the Liberty Movement, like the people that I deal with, you know, we're in this, you know, we're just, another, we're another step in this process. This is our process. We are the resistance movement. It's just we're, different ways of coming into it. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, that's really striking in that uh, you don't tend to think of it as a cultural uh, phenomenon, but the, the numbers who were opposed to Wall Street bailout, as opposed to the numbers of people who were opposed, these are percentages, to the Syrian intervention, originally at least, uh, way over the scale, and yet the, the powers that be went ahead and ran through that. They just didn't care what the people thought. So there was kind of a landmark here that the British people managed to get them stopped. That must have been a cultural thing. Uh, and, and the American people, to a degree, it has been stopped. I mean, they knew they'd lose their right. vote. But right. the, they were on the road to Damascus, and they had a conversion. Um, that's been the, the point of that show. Right, and, you know, and it's interesting. And why, why has there been a shift in the culture? You know, I came here nine years ago. Um, I remember the conversations I was having about how the Americans were responding completely differently to the run-up to the Second Iraq War um, from how the rest of us the rest of the world was responding. They're much more gung-ho, much more credulous in the United States uh, of what they were being told. Not anymore, right? The culture shifted. Who do we have to thank for that? Well, the overreach by and the, and the lies told by the Bush administration, right? I mean, we're now benefiting, if you like, in the culture from that. We're a little bit wiser. But what, but what Bush did didn't actually... You know, he obviously didn't do anything political to make it harder for Obama to, you know, or for, let's say, for any administration to start another war, even on the back of lies. I mean, he did that, and he kind of got away with it. But, it, but the, the response to that, again, was in the culture. Mm-hmm. And so now 
seeing these huge poll numbers against the intervention in Syria, it always starts. It always starts in the culture. Uh, we've got about uh, six minutes left, and paradigm shift. That That's your... I, I keep... Yeah. The one thing I keep hearing in my head is paradigm shift. In 1776, there's a paradigm shift going on. Uh, I, I sent you some links on this, but, but that's the year that the first... Um, First steam engine in production, or at least credited that. There'll be a link up on that. Mm, mm. Uh, that would be a hard paradigm shift to have recognized in real time, because you're about to look at the end of humans as the only source of energy. Uh, slavery can be abolished at that point. Uh, so you've got a paradigm shift starting at that point, although how many people saw it, I don't know. Uh, another paradigm shift, Adam Smith mm, mm. published Wealth of Nations, uh, which gives you the economics that it would take to have the Industrial Revolution, which is about to take off. And the third paradigm shift is the Declaration of Independence, uh, which, as we can see, wasn't uh, springing full-born from the sea like Venus arising on the, on the conch right. shell. Um, any thoughts on that? Uh, well, yeah, obviously my whole trust is that it, it, didn't, it didn't spring that way, um, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I think with respect to some of the, like, you know, you talk about technological advance, the steam engine, um, although I believe that, the steam, that, that steam engines had actually been produced long time. Yeah, long it was the, they went into production that but, year. There's a big difference but, between exactly. an experiment and a Model T that people have. And that's progressive history, and that's something else we want to get into, because all of what we've been talking about was, uh, for instance, when we're saying, well, there's an elite that forced the change in Magna Carta. But what you see in progressive history is a larger and larger and larger percentage of people participating. And, and indeed, there is plenty of evidence to, to suggest, since you mention it, that the people in 13th century England understood the baronial action you know, of, of imposing Magna Carta as something, as, as they wouldn't have used the word democratic, but as democratic, as something beneficial to them, the commoners, the peasants, in the dispersion of power downwards. They, they saw that. It's, uh, it's Constitution Day. It's my guess that today there are more people that will see that cultural change that, that is coming over the horizon as what you call a paradigm shift. You also say you can't see through the paradigm shift. Right. Uh, it's, it's hard to see. I guess that was the point I was trying to raise was, well, they got through the paradigm shift, but you can't see what's on the other side was, was a point. Can you address that real quick? Yeah. I mean, you know, a society is a highly complex system. Yes. Um, and, you know, even, you know, even if you just drop grains of sand on a pile of sand, uh, predicting... Uh, what the what the pile of sand will look like after the chaotic collapse? You know, when you put there's one there's one grain that will that will make all the sides tip. Um, you can't yeah you know, predicting what the pile will look after the tip just for a pile of sand is is next to impossible. Doing the same thing for a society of 320 million people with different desires and beliefs and and you know needs etc. is uh, it's basically impossible. But what we, so, yeah, all we can do is keep doing what we're doing. Yeah, as long as each one of us is a grain of sand, and then in the chaos that comes after the paradigm shift, you know, in the new world, as it will seem to be, where there are lots of things up for grabs um, that were not up for grabs beforehand, that were kind of in place, we it, can... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It, it's comforting that, that we are grains of sand that are joining grains of sand that jumped on this pile all the way in. Right. What year? Ten? What? Ten, uh, fourteen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, and what? I, again, I stress that the interesting thing what you're saying is we can't say where any individual grain of sand is likely to end up. However, we can predict, and this is kind of a chaos theory thing, what the pile of sand will look like. That's called angle of repose. Um, I mean, I mean, yeah. Now you see. Now you're, you're running with my analogy. I, I agree with uh, it, 100. percent I'm not. It's beautiful. I, I want to say that you don't know what the structure. Even yes, you're right about the angle of repose, but you won't know the structure of that pile of sand. And similarly, you know, let's not let's not think that we 
now can see past the paradigm shift. Let's just make ourselves ready to act on the other side. Let's be the people who get to define the mainstream on the other side. I can't think of a better way to end this episode. This is Occupy 1776. We're Occupy Interview. Another great show. I thank you. We'll probably have to get you on for about the other 53 things that we just uncovered in this show that we <laughs> need to address. It's been great talking to you again. Any last thought real quick? No, that was a lot of fun, and I look forward to doing this again. Robin, thanks for standing. <laughs> you got it. Thank you, Terry.